Next speakers are Sarah and Stefan. Sarah Ben and Stefan Stratum from MedScheme. Uh, Sarah's also been in the healthcare space in South Africa quite a while, um, since the 19, late 1990s, and then went overseas for quite a while, eight years. Uh, Swiss in the UK, and she's come back recently back into the managed care analytics space, and that's also where Stefan's been working a statistician by qualification and then working towards his actual degree or qualification. Thanks. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Stephen and I are going to be talking to you this afternoon about one of our predictive models. And the problem statement is as follows. So we have... Um, we, we stratified the population in terms of healthcare risk. And um, we know that we have our high-risk individuals here, our healthy individuals here, and we've classified them broadly by RAB. Um, a RAB is an at-a-glance proxy for disease severity, and RUBS, um, can, a resource utilization band, or RUB, is a collection of Johns Hopkins adjusted clinical grouper um, system measures with similar concurrent relative resource use. Um, a RUB of zero indicates uh, that the, the beneficiary is not claimed at all, practically, and a, a RUB value of five indicates that the uh, beneficiary has um, has a severe disease profile and is a high claimer. Um, so what we do know is that a small group of high-risk individuals um, account for a relatively large proportion of spend, and um, on the other hand, individ healthy individuals um, claim very little. Um, but what we don't perhaps know is how, what happens to these costs in future years. So anecdotally, we know that um, these, these high-risk individuals um, who are claiming a lot now, will, um, they will regress to the mean. So chances are that this average claim will reduce in future years. If we look at the emerging risk population, um, currently their claims are about average, and for this um, particular population, we're looking at, claim, at average claims of just over um, 1,000 per beneficiary per month. And so they're claiming around average, um, but we know in future, well, they are the high claimers of the future, so we, we know that their claims are going to go up. So recently, I was at a, a meeting with trustees, and we had a question from a trustee. We were talking about the, the emerging risk individuals and how we expect costs to go up. And the trustee asked, well, uh, does that mean that this is a failing of managed care? So, uh, so certainly, we, we believe there will be movement amongst rubs as healthcare needs change, and as actuaries, we... Um, we might analyze the transition probability matrix between rubs so we have a good understanding. And certainly, as, as actuaries, we cannot be held accountable for the complex physiological factors that give rise to increased morbidity or mortality. However, where we as actuaries have perhaps failed is in enabling trustees to understand the tra trajectories of costs, so helping them understand that these emerging risk individuals, are their, their health status is likely to worsen, and we expect these average claims to go up. And the model we're going to talk to about today, um, it does exactly that. It projects costs, it predicts costs forward in future years for defined subpopulations. So in terms of today's agenda, um, I'm going to talk about some possible uses of this model. And then I'm going to hand over to Stefan, who's going to talk about um, data and methodology. 
I'm going to then talk about the analysis of the model coefficients, and then I'll, I'll hand back to Stefan, and he's going to talk about the model fit, predictive accuracy, and an, an interesting case study on diabetic lives, um, and practical considerations before I'll, I'll wrap up. And just to say, um, just to make two points, firstly, that the the model is um, under development, and we're constantly looking for areas to improve it, um, and we'll refer to a number of areas during our presentation today where we think um, it can be improved. And um, the second thing is that we really appreciate your feedback, and we've um, posed some questions at the end to facilitate discussion. We particularly value feedback from um, consultants and those working closely with trustees. Okay, so um, I think we've 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 covered the what the model does. It, it enables predictions for subgroups of the population, and the objective is to accurately predict cost and utilization for a grouping of lives of reasonable size over different time periods. So it has many potential applications. Um, we've listed those that we can think of here, and I've expanded on them in future slides, so I won't dwell on this slide. In terms of um, budgeting and pricing, um, the, the traditional way of, of budgeting at a population level or a medical scheme level, or I should maybe say medical scheme option level, is to start with the prior year claims, use that as a base, and add um, in, in inflation, um, an allowance for new technology, um, or util utilization, and um, benefit changes and age, age and sex, or so demographic changes, or, or as Emil said this morning, adjusting for supply side and demand side factors. Um, so that would be the traditional method of budgeting. Going forward, we could budget on a subpopulation level. Here I've just shown an indicative example of um, looking at different disease groupings, looking at diabetics or respiratory. And I've just listed a few for, by example, but we could use any subpopulation. Um, we're looking, we look at a case study of diabetes, and we do see that um, the increase in costs for the subpopulation of diabetics does increase beyond the trend, and that includes inflation and um, utilization increases. So we'll look at that in a bit more detail, but certainly there would be value in, in budgeting on this level. So talking about managed care interventions, um, Simon Dreyer in his um, presentation at the SSCPD day, day last year spoke about the, va the value of managed care and measuring the value of managed care. And um, I've borrowed some concepts from, from that presentation. And there are a number of methods to, manage, to measure managed care interventions. And um, the first is, which is kind of the gold standard, is the randomized control trial, which is a prospective method whereby we set up a a treatment and control group with identical characteristics identified up front, and then we um, compare them um, over time, compare outcomes over time. Um, the problem with this method is that um, it's quite complex to, uh, to, um, to initiate, and also it's, it relies on, well, the ethical considerations in that we have, um, say, 50% of the people who were intervening on and 50% who were not. So ethical considerations if we have an intervention that works and we're not intervening on 50%, that um, could be problematic. Case matching um, is kind of a retrospective attempt to create a treatment and control group. 
And um, the problem with this is that there could be bias in introduced. Where, and, and secondly, um, it relies on a low take-up of the intervention. Pre- and post-intervention assessment, um, the problem with this approach is that where there's um, regression to the mean, this doesn't work. And the savings approach is more relevant for rules-based. And then, so we get to the actual versus expected, all other things being equal. So certainly this is a, a, um, a good approach if we can agree on the expected. And what we're proposing is um, using an accurate prospective claims prediction um, as a benchmark. So I think it is a form of the actual versus expected, but we just need to ensure that we're comfortable with, with the expected and also that it is... Um, auditable, and um, that the trustees and advisors to the scheme um, ag agree on the expected. And that's the theme, one of the key themes of our presentation. So um, just um, two more uses I'm going to touch on. Firstly is understanding disease progression and setting long-term strategy. We're predicting future costs. The model we're talking about today, we've, we've looked at three years, but certainly it could be extended to um, five years, and it really helps us um, understand and target interventions for, for specific subpopulations, and cost and utilization might be very different for different uh, populations, and it provides much better insight into the subpopulations in terms of cost and utilization, and also helps us understand resource consumption. And then, in terms of understanding cost and utilization drivers, we're going to talk about model coefficients um, in, a, in a few minutes. But these analysis of the coefficients enable us to understand what increases risk. For example, geographical region might be a proxy for access. And the, um, the coefficients are not only clinical, also demographic, choice of plan, etc. And we investigate in using additional independent variables to improve the predictive and prescriptive power of the model. And one example is incorporating the impact of behavior changes, which is quite ambitious, um, but um, something that we can do right now is to look at including the impact of medicine or, or of you know, medicine compliance or treatment compliance and looking at the impact, um, seeing whether that has an impact on cost. And certainly the model can be extended to cover outcomes more generally and um, and this, this is the title of our, our topic today, Predictive Modeling of Future Healthcare Outcomes. Although the model that Stefan will present is, is looking specifically at cost, um, it has been extended to utilization and also um, maybe a slightly different version, but it will be extended to cover quality as well. So over to Stefan, who's going to talk about the, mod the data and the modeling methodology. Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, I just didn't advance. I want to apologize for the slightly technical nature of, of some of this. Um, just on the data side, our source is just administrative claims data um, from the MedScheme database collected for the 2010 to 2014 treatment years. Um, obviously, administrative data is easily available. It's routinely collected, so it's there easy to use. But it obviously has some shortcomings for this kind of models. The most obvious is that it but it lacks certain clinical information that can certainly help you predict um, future utilization more accurately. Um, I think the, the, the clinical information is sort of at the level of the diagnoses and procedure codes that are on claims or on authorizations or whatever it may be, but, but certainly in terms of pathology test results and, and 
um, whatever notes doctors may make. I think that sort of information can obviously enhance such a model. Um, and then obviously other variables that, that we also don't routinely collect, such as socioeconomic status, have been shown um, in other studies to, to also have an impact on, on future utilization. But um, we have gone for, for just the admin data for, for this study. Um, in terms of methodology, we, we built a statistical regression model as opposed to the more grouper-type stratification models. Um, one of the main reasons for that is even though the, the two approaches could be um, comparable in terms of overall fit, um, it gives us a unique prediction for each individual. Um, and then what we want to do is we want to be able to group uh, beneficiaries into uh, random or non-random groups of lives. Um, and if we have an individual or, uh, uh, outcome in this, in, in this instance, cost, for each live, we, we can do that if, it, if the predictions are reasonably accurate. Um, then just on our method uh, modeling philosophy is, is we always try to keep the models as simple as possible, like simple in the, in the descriptive sense. Um, Sarah is just going to talk about some of the model coefficients now. Um, so the simple models um, for us are just normal linear regression models because the interpretation is so simple with your coefficients being in the same unit as your response. So when Sarah will talk about the, the model coefficients, um, you'll see how easy it is to interpret the results. Um, so we only uh, use more complex models once, or if we think that the, um, the enhanced predictive power sort of satisfy or uh, justifies the, um, the additional complexity of the model and the difficulties in, in explaining it and interpreting the results. Then finally, we often in our literature reviews see costs being split up into um, hospital and out of hospital when you're doing these kind of models. Main reason for that is the very different cost distribution. Um, we've split the data further into a chronic medicine component. Basically, two reasons for that. The one is, again, the distribution of the data where the chronic um, costs um, are a lot more distributed, like the hospital data, and we have a a relatively small uh, proportion of claimers, so you have this big point mass at zero, um, and then a few, a few, or relatively few claimers. Um, and then the second reason is just if we do the predictions on the group levels, it gives us a lot of insight to be able to split it up and see what is driving this. Is it on the hospital side, or the chronic medicine side, or, or the ambulatory cost side? And then just finally, um, we didn't do any data trimming or truncation. Um, the only sort of adjustment that we made to the data is we exclude, in most of our models, um, admissions for trauma and neonates um, because they are so difficult to predict the incidence and the cost for those claims. So I said we split the data into, into three groups. So in essence, we built three different statistical models. Um, when we do the evaluation of the model, we'll talk about the total cost. The total cost is just then the sum of the, the three component models which we uh, developed. Um, and then uh, following our philosophy, we fit the linear models first. Um, and then we, we sort of toyed with um, different variations of um, distribution for response variables and link functions in the GLM space and tested whether we, um, we can improve our predictions and with those more complex models. And in our final uh, formulations that currently is, we've got a multiple linear regression models for the ambulatory and the chronic medicine costs. But we've got a slightly more complex um, model for the hospital cost where we split it up or we built a two-part model separately uh, predicting the probability of incurring hospital costs and then conditional on that, um, given that you have or beneficiary have 
um, incurred hospital cost, what that cost would be. Um, so we've got a logistic regression model to, um, to, to calculate or to predict the probability of incurring hospital cost. And then currently we've got a, a GLM with a gamma distribution um, and a log link function. As I've said, we've, we've tested various um, distributions for the response variable and the link function. Um, and this is where we currently are. Then on the independent variable set, we use the same uh, set of independent variables um, for all four outcomes. Um, individually, we tested these variables as um, uh, significance on, on, on the outcome. Um, I think, especially you'll see when Sarah talks about some of the model coefficients, there are definitely um, still some improvements that could be made in terms of variable selection and, and getting out some, some collinearity in the model. But, on a high level, currently, we've got age and gender in there. Um, we've got a variable just to, um, to adjust for benefit richness. This is so you run over multiple scheme options, and we just group them into, into the level of benefit. Then we've got a set of risk markers from the Johns Hopkins ACG system, which has been rigorously tested by Johns Hopkins um, to have a, a significant impact on these kind of outcomes that, we, that we're predicting. Then we've got a set of binary variables for chronic diseases. Um, We've got previous cost in there, not as a continuous variable, but as a, a set of, of cost bands, percentile bands. Um, cost remains very strong predictor for future utilization, almost acts as a summary statistic of how sick and healthy somebody is. And then finally, we've got um, province in there just as a proxy for access to healthcare. Um, I think Sarah just going to talk to a few of these specific independent variables. Thanks, Stefan. So we um, we looked at a um, our our model for the year one model, and just to say that um, it's quite comp it's quite complex to analyze the model coefficients because every time we run the model, it generates a new set of coefficients, and um, the 267 times four um, coefficients. So, so for age, as an example, there are um, 10 variables and then a base. So you'll see 11 values for age. Um, and a lot of clinical markers as well. And um, so I guess we haven't conducted a complete and comprehensive analysis of the model coefficients, but we just did some sense checks and we saw um, that some things look sensible um, and some things um, we probably need to spend a bit more time explaining. Certainly the shape of age looks sensible, and here we're looking at the ambulatory cost. Um, for the chronic cost, we see a similar shape, although slightly flatter than I would expect. Um, but for gender, um, we saw, we actually seeing for the year one run very, um, a very small impact of gender. And I, I would hypothesize that the reason for that is that um, we're explaining differences in gender um, due to various other markers, for example, the um, clinical markers specific to the female population, breast cancer and the like. Um, and also there's a, a pregnancy or maternity marker so um, I think, I'm not confident, but I think we may have explained away the maternity hump, um, but we certainly need to um, investigate that um, further. And just to look at the top 12 um, variable coefficients, um, just to give you some flavor for the, um, the uh, clinical variables. And again, we're looking at the ambulatory cost, which is a linear model, um, but we have also transformed the values for the, the hospital model. Um, just to say that the, um, the, the top cost there is um, chronic renal failure, and the 
and there, there may be some elements of collinearity and that we those I've highlighted are the all related to chronic renal failure um, but they, they are different um, different parameters the first is uh, the medicine it's the GURX is the medicine um, the, the third one is whether they registered on the program and um, and certainly and then the, the REN01 is a chronic renal failure marker. Um, so when we did um, the analysis for the for um, diabetics, I think that um, I added in a slide, Alex, I think that this is not the latest version, um, but I did add in a slide on um, on diabetics and we, we found that the, the collinearity is, um, is almost necessary because diabetes, you, you can have um, both type 1 and type 2 diabetics um, on insulin with, with insulin. So type 2, um, type, type 1, you would always have with insulin. So sometimes you do, depending on the clinical nature, you do actually need to look at the um, medicine markers separately. Um, so um, just to say and to link on to what Emil um, touched on earlier, this, earlier today in terms of the musculoskeletal and inflammatory um, conditions, those, that's where you see our biologicals, that's why we see such a big value there. Um, but I don't think there are any great surprises on the list in terms of um, you know, cancers, um, leukemias, um, transplants, and allergy, immunology. There are expensive medicines there, immunoglobins, antineuroplastic and immunomodulating agents. Um, so the, the, I think it really um, validates, you know, going through the, con the coefficients and trying to understand them does provide some validation. Just to say on the, on the diabetic um, slide that um, I wanted to show you, we looked at a, kind of an odd, odds ratio. We looked at a type 1 diabetic who's insulin dependent compared to a type 2 diabetic who's non-insulin dependent. And the model shows that the probability of incurring hospital costs is, um, the ratio is 1.27, so it's 27% higher probability of hospitalization. Once in hospitalization, a 14% higher probability of, 14% um, higher hospital cost, 72% higher ambulatory cost, and um, the chronic cost for insulin dependent versus non-insulin dependent, six times higher. So very interesting um, comparative statistics that come out of the um, analysis of the coefficients. But now back to Stefan to talk about the model fit. Thanks, yes. Um, we um, so we've evaluated the model in two different ways. The first is just the um, sort of using the model fit, single model fit statistics, such as the R squared on the screen. Um, the R squared has got some very nice properties. Um, the two nicest properties really is that it um, that it's bounded between zero and one, um, and then that it's a unit, unitless measure. So it allows you to benchmark and compare against um, against other uh, published models. Um, it's got a few sort of less, less um, desirable properties as well. Um, the most uh, uh, problematic one in healthcare data is the fact that it squares the prediction error, um, which makes it um, very sensitive to prediction errors um, for, for the high claimers. Um, and a number of authors argue that at least if you're going to use this for benchmarking comparative purposes, not to run it on data that has not been um, truncated. Then the second measure we've looked at, it's, a, it's traditionally used to, um, 
evaluate the accuracy of forecasts and time series analysis, but we've seen it in a few predictive modeling papers as well. Um, uh, it's the mean absolute percentage error. It's got the, the advantage, if you will, over the R squared in that the prediction error isn't squared, um, so it's not as sensitive to, um, to those uh, prediction errors in the, at the top end of the distribution. But it's got two major shortcomings. The one is that it's, um, it divides, the, it's got the actual cost, actual claim for, for each life in the, in the denominator, which makes it not defined for, for many observations in healthcare data where those zero claims occur. Um, and then also because you divide by the actual for each observation, um, it penalizes overpredictions much more severely than underpredictions. Underpredictions because you divide by that, by that actual is bounded at 100%, whereas overpredictions have no upper bound. Um, so that is definitely less than ideal. An alternative sort of measure of this that's in a, in, in a paper from Winkleman and Mahmoud from 2007 is they basically, they go through a whole convoluted discussion at how, you know, as to how they arrived at this. Um, but they basically replace that actual observation in the denominator um, by the mean, by the actual mean, which immediately makes the defined for zero, um, and the overpredictions are not as that bias favoring underpredictions is is not as severe. And then obviously it also has the nice property in that the prediction error isn't squared, so it, don't, it doesn't penalise you as, as as much for those um, prediction errors in the on the large claimants. Then the model fit statistics. I think just to say first the the one year prediction refers to um, predictions for a single benefit year, one year into the future. The two-year prediction is also for a single benefit year, but two years into the future. And then the same for the three-year prediction. And then the three-year um, model is just combining um, or aggregating claims for three years. So you still have a single year set of independent variables, but you try and predict costs for, for three years um, aggregated. Two interesting observations. Um, the one is perhaps expected in that your model fit diminishes as you predict further into the future. Um, and then the second one is that your model fit for the aggregated model is better than the single year models. Um, our theory is that a bit of that is probably due to out, like real outlier admissions being, because it's aggregated over a longer term period, not having such a large effect. Um, but the way we look at this is just as a sort of to benchmark ourselves against some other um, papers out there, um, in particular the, um, the Winkleman and Mahmoud paper, which I referenced earlier, that, that, that has a comparison of a, of a number of models. And I think we, we sort of there or thereabouts, like better than some, not as good as others. Um, but I think sort of happy to say that, that we're satisfied with the, with the overall fit. What we're really interested in is getting to the predictive accuracy of what we're actually trying to achieve. Um, and that is to compare costs, our predictions, against actuals, not on an individual level, but for, for groups of, of individuals. Um, so we just use a, like a normal actual over expected type measure, um, expressed as a percentage, um, to calculate our prediction error for, for groups of lives. We've tested it just on random samples of lives, um, and then also non-random groupings of lives. And I'm going to present like three, three non-random groups. The first is again using this um, ACG stratification where um, we stratified the people into these six 
resource utilization bands at, at the time of making the predictions. Um, and I think what we're quite excited about is the overall prediction area there is at about 1%. I don't think that's anything to, to, to get excited about. I think if you go back to Sarah's um, slide on the, you know, the traditional budgeting and, and pricing slide, I think on overall that's uh, pretty easy to get, to get right to that level of accuracy. But, but we, what we are excited about, and uh, I think this is what, what's a big improvement in our modeling, is um, being able to, to get it accurately um, for these groups, and especially in that top end, that very high claimers, where we've always struggled to, to get that right using just our linear models, which we've traditionally used. Um, the one area where we do still see pretty big prediction errors are on the people that were non-claimers in the year when we, when we, when we ran the model, um, mainly because we've got, because they don't have claims, we just have demographic information, um, and which makes it in a model that, that, that is fitted to a lot of clinical information as well, makes it very difficult to, to get that right. So non-claimers in the current year should possibly be handled a little bit differently. Our second grouping just looks at, um, at, at taking the predictions and then banding them. Um, we're looking here at the, at the bottom quartile, the second quartile, third quartile, and then sort of in the top end where, where it gets a little interesting, we just um, between the 75th and the 90th percentile, and then in that top decile where, where, where your high claimers sit, we, we broke it up into, um, into five five percent bands. And again, um, we, we, we're very comfortable with the accuracy of, of, um, of these particular groups. And again, especially in that, in that top, top five percent where we've always struggled to, to get it right prospectively. Um, again, the prediction error is at the, at the bottom end. If you go from about the 10th percentile up, it becomes very accurate in, in any grouping, but, but just those non-claimers are, are sort of affecting um, those predictions. But the absolute prediction error in RAND terms is, is relatively small at, at 21 RAND uh, per life per month. And then the final one is just also by looking at it in clinical groups. These groups are not, um, are not mutually exclusive. People can have cardiovascular diseases and a psychosocial Condition. So this is not cardiovascular cost per life, this is total cost per life for someone um, with a cardiovascular condition. And in general, um, we are very satisfied with the accuracy um, on, on, on this level. Then we just, I just want to quickly go through a case study that, that Sarah spoke about and just sort of a, a, a very simple application of how we think we can, we can use this kind of model. And I think it speaks... Um, both the, the, the budgeting and planning side of things as well as managing or monitoring um, managed care programs. Um, so we took a sample of type 2 diabetics, about 90,000 lives, um, and then just predicted costs for it for, uh, for, for three benefit years. We used 20, 2011 as a base and predicted it for it for 12, 13, 14 and compared that to the actuals. And this table just summarized the prediction error in each, in each year. The predictions were just very roughly um, adjusted for inflation every year, no other adjustments. Um, and for all three years, I think it is, it is reasonably accurate. We can then drill into it a little bit further, just a few examples. We've done it again by the ACG rubs. Um, pretty accurate. Um, even the prediction error there in the, at the top end in the rub five, the high claimers, is, is under 10%. Um, by gender, it's pretty accurate. By age band, um, pretty accurate. I think 90-odd... 90, 90 percent of these diabetics sit between a 12 to 17 year age band 
and that 70 to 74 age band. So certainly there we, we are very accurate. Um, so looking at that, we, we, we are fairly satisfied. And then just to take it a little bit further, and I think whether we uh, are monitoring managed care programs, I think could potentially come in, is we, we've taken a smaller subset of those diabetics. We've taken a group um, which at the time, the information we had about them at the time of running the model, had um, few comorbidities. So we defined that as taking people, or these diabetics in those rubs two and three, um, so they're claiming on average less or than the average diabetic. Um, so with 2011 as a base, we just looked at um, adjusting the costs up firstly by inflation, then taking inflation and making sort of your normal age and utilization adjustment, and then comparing the model results. And you can clearly see where you would have um, fallen short by just making the normal um, adjustment. And I think this is these kind of things that um, we need to, to, to get this message across to trustees that um, it's not simply Sarah's question about is managed care not working. If it's, if it's not going down, it's not necessarily that managed care isn't working. Um, it is sometimes just the natural progression of these costs. We actually had this question internally yesterday as well when we, when we ran through the slides. Um, somebody asked, but, but, but why? Why is that increase so steep, so, so much over inflation? Um, and I think we debated a little bit, and I think the clinician's sort of view is that possibly because you pick those that are not as diseased, they develop comorbidities, and, um, and hence the increase in cost, and that's probably partly true, um, although it is a very short time period for that to happen. I think there's also just a bit of regression to the mean in there, and we, we specifically took those that, um, that are diabetics but had a pretty good claiming year, um, and they're naturally statistically more likely to claim a bit more in the next year. But the point is this model allows you to capture that shape, um, which you otherwise might not have. And then just finally from me, it's just some practical considerations. Um, if you run the model now um, and predict costs for next year, obviously if there are every, any structural changes, um, your predictions are immediately wrong. Um, so you need to take these into, into account. Um, all our, for all our tests here, yeah, we just very crudely um, adjusted them for inflation. But obviously, if you have major changes in benefits, um, those predictions probably need to be adjusted for those. The same with new technology. If you have a prostate cancer variable and robotic surgery comes to the market immediately, that coefficient for, for prostate cancer will be wrong. And then the same with option changes in demographics and member churn, and, and there are others, but, but just something to, to to keep um, in mind when, when doing these predictions. Um, and then over to Sarah. So, so to conclude, um, we've demonstrated that based on our predictive model, predictions for reasonably large groups of lives or subpopulations um, are very accurate. And this is a very useful result. It allows medical schemes to accurately predict future expenditure and utilization for um, groups of lives or subpopulations that may be of interest. And uh, we spoke about the variety of uses. Um, certainly, if we go back to the, the, the question from the trustee, it does explain why um, we expect costs to increase um, for certain populations and decrease for others. And we can um, pr predict that with, with a... Um, a high degree of accuracy. And um, something I forgot to mention earlier is that um, we, 
the advantage of using this, um, for specifically talking about the measuring managed care, the value of managed care, and the advantage of using this method is that we can um, intervene on all lives. We don't have to split our lives into a treatment and control group or rely on low take-up. We can intervene on all lives um, and then measure um, savings based on an actual versus expected approach. So um, just to mention um, some of our references that we've, I think we've mentioned some during, during the course of the presentation. And then to pose two questions to the audience um, to get the discussion going. Um, firstly, uh, are you comfortable with the predictive accuracy of the model as we've presented it today? And secondly, are you comfortable with using accurate prescriptive claims predictions as a benchmark to measure managed care savings? So thank you very much, and I um, look forward to questions. Yeah, who wants to answer first? Rosanne says, ask or answer. Um, I think the advisors to schemes out there, the consultants sitting here, it would be nice to hear your point of view. I don't really want to ask Lusani because he's in the same house. But it's the first time I, I see this work because I, I don't attend her meetings. Um, no, I, th I think my, my view from uh, as, a, as, a, as a consultant um, would be, um, it, it would be a challenge though, but it would be ideal to run two templates, um, you know, for next year, you know, run the normal one, you know, using the normal sort of methodology and so on and see how one can get far with this, um, even if one doesn't necessarily use it um, in, 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 in doing the pricing, but, 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 but certainly would be helpful with the, with the budgeting and just being able to check, um, because the, the, the predicament that I sometimes find myself in when I'm looking at the, especially looking at the first quarter and looking at the results now, is like, yes, I, I had a high level budget, but I didn't budget at a procedure level or, or, or a disease level. So therefore, I, I can't really tell whether this is what I should have expected or not. But, but if I have something like this, I can then say, no, the, the, the respiratory uh, conditions or, the, or, the, or, or, or this group of, of, of conditions or disease are, are getting out of line and that could call for a deeper investigation into that. Um, so, so that is what I see could be a very useful exercise um, for me as a consultant. So, um, you know, when you go into the managed care meetings, you, you would have more to talk about. So, yeah, that, that's my input. Okay, thanks, Lizani. And, and certainly we are looking at um, uh, where we have um, randomized control groups set up. We, we will run, run those concurrently with this methodology and see and compare results. Thanks. I'm walking to Barry because his house has done a similar paper. Thanks, Alex. Um, so I just wanted to clarify one question. I, I, I might have missed the slide, but um, so when you were when you were quantifying the fit on looking forward, you used the R squares and some of the modified methods. Um, but then when you were comparing it against other methodologies like the ACGs, that looked like a cross-sectional analysis. So uh, what I what I was missing, and again maybe I just missed that slide, was 
to, because the question is how, how good a predictor is it of groups, of a cohort, if you identify a particular, you know, people with a particular set of, uh, a mix of um, characteristics and you project their claims going forward, how good is that at predicting that at a group level? The R squared measure looking forward one, two, three years is, is individual. Um, did I miss that one? So you're talking about these these slides? Or? Yes, yes. So, so that I mean, this I just want to understand: is this at a cross section? Was this no? It's looking forward. So, okay. so this is yeah. It's you're in in this grouping at the time, and we run the model, and then we compare the the predicted against the actual. So the predicted the takes there. into account inflation assumptions as well, based on the current fitted year, and then you're looking at the. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then to answer your question, yes, I think the the estimates um, looking forward, um, particularly in the higher categories, are quite good at a group level. Um, I think they, I mean, we've seen not entirely dissimilar results. Um, you know, the, the, the danger is, or the, the trick from a consulting point of view, from a scheme point of view, is so, always in, it's like so difficult to, to compare against a theoretical figure, to say mm. this is what would have happened if, if, uh, if we left things unchecked. Mm. Um, because, you know, the reality is they're staring them in the face. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we, we've been pursuing similar kinds of avenues, um, and uh, yeah, we think there's a lot of a uh, lot of road for this kind of stuff going forward. I think partly our view is that if you, it is certainly, I mean, it's it's not without without problems, but certainly if you can have that expected set up and uh, you know at the onset, rather than trying to come up with an expected after the fact, I think it could be less controversial than that certainly. May ask discovery. Do you get challenged on managed care, value of managed care, and do you use this kind of method? Or have you used this method? Do you know? We, we've done a lot of different ways of doing predictive modeling. Um, one of the things that we've used that I don't think you've mentioned is that the ACG tool itself has a predictive tool in it. I don't know. It's actually a question that I was thinking about how your results correlate to... Because uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a couple of years since we looked at it, but the uh, the SUG tool itself gives you a sense of which members are likely to be high cost in the next year. And I think having that view combined with your expected costs could actually be very, very useful from a managed care perspective, um, especially when you're trying to measure the impact of an intervention. Um, unfortunately, I think the specificity was very good, but the sensitivity was not, or something when we tested it on our data. Um, but to answer your question is, a lot of the time what we're struggling to do is exactly the, the problem that you're trying to answer here is how do you find a benchmark? Because um, even where we have lots of people turning down an intervention, we often find that there's a reason for that. Um, you know, that there's an inherent bias in the control group when you just use the people who turn it down because of the information asymmetry between what we see and what the patient may know at the point that they turn it down. Um, so using something like this that gives you an objective predictive from the outset measure that you can compare against, I think is fundamentally very valuable. Uh, last question. Yeah, thank you very much for a great presentation. This is very relevant to what we are also doing. I'm at Metropolitan Health. Um, and I think the last two comments actually alludes to my question. Um, it might be a, a stupid question. Um, but how did you get around, uh, I mean, you posed the question now, is the audience comfortable to use that as a, as a benchmark? So um, perhaps I'm, 
I'm coming to the wrong conclusion that you arrived uh, to a place where you're comfortable to say this is a benchmark against which we can measure. But um, what's your general approach to getting around um, most of the data being um, the you see experience of where the intervention already takes place? So again, so that's what uh, Barry also uh, mentioned is you still sit with a theoretical benchmark rather than actual data uh, that calibrates your benchmark. Yeah, that is obviously very, very difficult to do. Um, we, um, we are trying to, I think that's sort of what Sarah spoke about when she mentioned the behavioral um, indicators, is to somehow try and adjust in the model for other um, kind of managed care programs, but we're not quite there yet. We are sort of grappling with that at the moment as well. I think when I talk about these percentage errors, the 5%, um, what makes me quite comfortable about them is we had a, like a pilot program where we had a randomized control group sp uh, split up prospectively. And after the first year, we didn't... Um, um, so when we, before the intervention were implemented, just as a test, we split uh, people into, into random groups So the, before the intervention. And at the end of a benefit year, evaluated the cost difference for those two groups. And I think it was out in any case by about 4%, if I remember correctly. So I think when we get to you know, that 5% prediction error, I think that's sort of in the normal um, sort of fluctuation that you might expect for these very specific groups of lives in any case. Um, so I think certainly in measuring that, you would put that sort of confidence band around it, um, you know, give or take a few percentage points. Okay, and then you pretty much back at the randomized control group again. So say you pause that phase and you prove that your intervention works, and then you intervene on the total population, and then five years down the line, the question is posed again, and then you only sit with the theoretical benchmark again. So yeah, it is a challenge. It's true. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I think certainly we've seen clients that like the randomized control trial method and then three, four years later they sort of now question it and you're sort of doing the same thing. So you can't rerun that. It's the gold standard and you've, yeah, so there's is that challenge. But I think let's, let's have our tea break. Uh, thanks everyone. Remember to please sign your CP points. Uh, double points if you come back afterwards and stay at the last <laughs> sessions. Uh, and thanks, Sarah and Stefan. <laughs>